Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hey there, heroes. This is the last episode of 2016, which means we made it through a whole year of shows together. It also means I'm going to get all nostalgic and retrospective for a few minutes, so hang on to your butts. I went back and re-listened to the intro for the first episode. I wanted to hear again how I had introduced myself to you and how I had set expectations for this show. I wanted to see what still rang true and if I met any of those goals this year. This is definitely the weightiest form of accountability I have ever tried. Let's start with me. I introduced myself as a filthy casual who still felt like a games newcomer after playing all sorts of games off and on for over 10 years. I kind of wanted to reach through time, space, and the internet to smack past me in the head, but I still get where she was coming from. I had no idea the breadth and scope of games that awaited me. I had no idea what counted as an RPG, and had even totally forgotten about some games I had played years ago. But numbers don't matter, and it's not a pissing contest, and gatekeepers of any time can get the hell out. With that said, I kept an exhaustive list of all the games I played this year. But seriously, I've linked Epidia Ravishal's Games Challenge slash New Year's Resolution more than once, and I will again. But between his posts and my desire to use this podcast in part to help me on my games journey, I've been keeping a list of what games I've played and with who, marking games and players that are new to me. I talked a bit about this challenge with Taylor on his Riverhouse Games podcast back in April, and I've come even further since then. As of this episode, I've played 64 new-to-me games in 2016, 47 of which I would count as an RPG or a LARP or storytelling game. I put this list up on Tumblr with info on the games. That sounds like a huge number, and I feel like I need to qualify it by by reminding you that there's a lot of games that I had not played before, just at all, and there's so many games out there, and this is what happens when you're able to go to as many conventions as I was able to go to this year. I don't talk a lot about myself on this podcast, and was debating early on whether or not and how best to share a little personal segment about games that I've been playing. Over time, that morphed into a part of the Second Watch podcast with Alex and Jim that I'm supremely happy about. But I'm going to be keeping this same kind of list again in 2017, and I'd like to keep it publicly on the Tumblr. If there are games or systems I get particularly passionate about and feel like you need to know about them and they don't really work as an episode, I'll blog or make a video about them there and let you know in the podcast intros. It was a really, really fun experiment. And it's something that I encourage everyone to do, if not to keep track of new things that you've played, but it's a nice thing to look back at and remember all of the cool games that I played with interesting people. If you get really ambitious, you can keep notes about the the stories that you told and the experiences that you had. And it's just, it's really nice to remember those things. But speaking of the podcast, I talked a lot about what I hope to do and get out of it back in episode one. I wanted it to focus on how we modify games to tell our best stories, with a focus on the game developer's process and how they reach their storytelling goals. We've had some really broad episodes and some really niche episodes, but I feel overall that these are the core questions I come back to again and again. It's definitely still something I'm learning. I'm learning how to ask questions and how to get what I'm after, but I feel like the focus has been there the whole time, so I'm really proud of that. The last thing that I said that I wanted was for this show to be a conversation, not just between myself and whatever guests I have on, but between everyone listening and the guests and me, all all of us in this equation together. I wanted this conversation so your questions could get asked, but also so you could make connections with other designers and get inspired to make your own games. I am 100% Twitter trash, and between the modifier Twitter and my own account, I feel like this has been a non-stop, year-long conversation party. You ask amazing questions, and you push each other, and I see you out there tinkering with games and systems and making these structures serve your vision. It's amazing, and I am so grateful you share it with me. I don't feel like a newcomer anymore. Over this last year, I have had the privilege of making friends with so many people in the OneShot Network community, the podcast community, games, conventions, even my own local games community. You have all been truly amazing, and most of it has been online. I was lucky enough to go to a number of cons this year, but the love and support people have for each other online has been incredible. If you feel like you're missing out on something, or if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you've got to jump in on Twitter, on Reddit, Tumblr, G Plus community, 
please, this place is full of amazing folks who make my life better every day. Thank you. But we have a show to do. <laughs> this week, I talked to J. Michael Bestel about playing in the 13th Age Sandbox. He's a Chicago-based gamer and designer with a penchant for 13th Age, a fantasy system that lets you roll a bunch of dice, but also helps you get real into the narrative and storytelling aspect of RPGs. At one point, he even describes it as a system that helps you and your players tell the stories you want to tell, which I did not coach him to do, by the way. It's just that Jay and 13th Age are both mega great and on brand this week. I think you'll love them both. Let's get to the show. Joining me this week is Jay Michael Bestel, and we are going to talk about 13th Age. Um, Jay, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, uh, who you are and where where people might know you from? Well, hello. I am Jay Michael Bestel. Um, I... Don't know where people might know me from. Uh, folks in the Chicago area and who do uh, tabletop gaming in the area might recognize me as the uh, fellow who likes Call of Cthulhu and 13th Age and who loves whiskey and cocktails and who has a ridiculous mustache. That, I think, is my identifying feature. Um, it is a very nice mustache. <laughs> I have seen it in person now, yes. <laughs> I, I will tell a story, a very brief story. Uh there were a couple of, of guys who worked for OSHA who had to take training in Chicago. They're from Indiana, and um, they happened to go to a gamer meetup, um, hung out with them after the meetup, went to Chicago on Games here in Chicago with them. And they uh, later that year at Gen Con, I end up um, just walking around, before, you know, the Wednesday before it starts, and someone says, mm -hmm. hey, Jay. I'm like, whoa, nobody here knows me. This was after I'd kind of taken some time off from gaming to do theater stuff or try to. And I'm like, nobody here knows me. And it turned out to be one of the guys, uh, his name was Sean, who was, you know, he, cause he's originally from Indianapolis. So he was there and he recognized the mustache. I was like, well, no, oh, I obviously can't sh ever shave this because. <laughs> it's how people find you. Apparently. So, yeah. um, but besides the, the appearance, um, I do a lot of jamming around here in Chicago. Um, I've tried to start doing a little more freelancing. I um, have a background in theater, in journalism. Um, and so I've written, for example, right now, for, I wrote something for Steamscapes. Um, and otherwise, I try to do a lot of events jamming around the uh, area, Very as fun. well as Midwest Con. So. Yeah. You were just at a catacon. That was an awesome time, by the way, if, in, if yes. anyone hasn't gone. It was it was awesome. It was my first at catacon, and... Definitely not going to be my last. That was a lot of fun. I concur with that sentiment. <laughs> Man, yeah, that was good. It was, um, I wasn't, I, I didn't know what to expect going into that one, um, but it was just it was such a good time. But we are going to talk specifically about uh, 13th Age, which you have done some modding of and some hacking of, I, I hear. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Uh... Yeah. Um, so, so I guess to to start with, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about like what Thirteenth Age is basically? Because I I've played once now at a con, um, and it was it was enjoyable. I got to roll a lot of dice, which is always a good time. <laughs> uh, but I think people hear it and assume it's it's just sort of another D and D kind of. It's a fantasy game. So like, what is it? What makes it different? And and that's a good place to start with. Whenever um, I'm. GMing it at a con, what I tend to introduce it as is it's very much a fantasy D20 game. It has a lot of the hallmarks you'd expect from that style of game. Uh, the two primary authors behind it, Jonathan Tweet and Rob Heinzu, uh, worked on previous editions of D&D, &D, for example. Um, oh. So Yeah, I know. So you have a lot of that to it. To me, the way I differentiate it is that it takes a lot of the, the expectations of what we know and uh, of D&D &D and of that kind of fantasy D20 setting and adds in and kind of mixes a little bit of some of that crunchiness with uh, aspects of what we might think of as narrative or storytelling style games. Hmm. It's one of the things I find I found interesting is someone started up a, uh, a newer Slack channel for RP Chica RPGs in Chicago and there had been a robust discussion on how you know, some of the fantasy D20 games tend to very focus very heavily mechanically on combat and then kind of let the players and GMs figure out how to finagle, you know, the role-playing in the role-playing game. Right. And I, and I always feel that 13th Age has this really robust 
ex- not just mechanics, but expectations and guidelines on how to add role-playing and collaboration and improvis- improvisation to a fancy D20 game. So that's oh. that's be the elevator pitch, I guess. Oh, that's a long one. No, that that's very cool. What specifically do you think, like, what is 13th Age doing to kind of help you role-play better, to, to make it more like a storytelling game? So... It obviously it has a lot of the you know class and combat mechanics as so that's that's there, but it introduces three big elements that uh, differentiate it from I think other fantasy D twenty games. One is the one unique thing. Um, yeah. Yes, that's one of the big fun ones. That is um, specifically, it's every character has that one unique thing about them that is true of them and only them and no one else in whatever setting or world you are playing in. And this, it, what's interesting about these kind of the three things that I that differentiated, the one unique thing is specifically they lay out is not a mechanical uh, thing. There isn't something that's going to, it's not going to improve your dice. It's not going to give you an extra roll. It's simply, what is the one unique thing about you as a mm-hmm. character? And then as, so as a player, you can always refer back to it. As a GM, it can be very helpful in, you know, if, especially if you do a little, a lot of collaborative or improvisational kind of storytelling and world building, that can provide a lot of impetus for uh, for that aspect of it. So that's one. Do you do you have any favorites that you've heard? I think that was one of oh. um, our table's favorite discussion points as we were going through the game. Was oh, my group did. There are a so. lot of them. I, I, yeah, it's one of those I could go on because every so often, you're like, oh, that's really cool. Uh, one of them that turned out to be a fun one uh, was at uh, ValorCon a couple of years ago. One of the players had sort of double booked himself. Mm-hmm. So he knew that he was going to leave partway through the game. And um, what had happened is he left partly through the game and someone had jumped in because they were spectating. They're like, oh yeah, I'd love to take over. And then, but then they had to leave because the person they were with had to leave. And so mm-hmm. a friend of mine who was spectating jumped in to take over the character. And it so happened that the one unique thing that the original player had created was that this uh, this, this dwarf was perfectly fluent in all of the languages of the Dragon Empire, but because he didn't, he was so fluent in everything. He sometimes thought he heard voices because he was accidentally, like you know, he was thinking in other languages and wouldn't always realize when he was speaking to, like, thinking to himself, and he would kind of answer himself. I forget the exact oh one unique thing they did, but that turned out to be this amazing thing because then you had two other players jump in, and that kind of, that meta-textual aspect of that one unique thing came through in the fact that three different people played this character. Oh, that's really good. Let's see. In my home, I mean, in my home game, it's, you know, one of them is I have a dwarven monk, um, and I think the... Uh, the person playing them might have been on the show, P.K. Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he, his dwarven monk was the four, first dwarf born from the stone in ages. Ooh! It's so it's very fun because then he also, and when we talk about icon relationships, he took a conflicted relationship with the dwarf king. So you have this aspect of, you know, it's this kind of very mythological, folkloric, uh, potentially religious background. You know, his one unique thing. But how does that play politically? And one of the other players, yeah, one of the other players in that game, and this is when you're coming up with one unique things, sometimes they just happen. Uh, like we ended up with a uh, halfling, the person wanted to play a half, a barbarian. And she kind of giggled at the idea of a halfling barbarian. So she's like, but no, that doesn't sound like it would normally happen. How can we make it happen? Um, and we decided that she was orphaned by an orc attack and that, uh, you know, a Dragonic in Drakenhall took her and adopted her. That's why she ended up being an arena fighter. She was like a, a top fighter in Drakenhall, you know, almost a celebrity. And so I said, okay, mm-hmm. what's your one unique thing? And she looked at me and was like, I'm pretty sure what we just came up with <laughs> yeah. is, is, is so sometimes when you're creating the class and you're creating your icon relationships and you're creating your, um, all this other stuff, sometimes the one unique thing really just kind of bubbles up organically. I like those. Um, but I derailed you, so. 
Oh, that's okay. Um, so one unique thing is one of the three things. Um, mm-hmm. And the two others, so the other one, uh, the second one is the icon relationships, which I mentioned. Um, now, the icon relationships are a mechanical and a narrative thing. Um, the way it works is that in, so if you're using the canonical setting, there are 13 individuals or groups. Each group is um, an icon in this game is is not necessarily a god or a goddess or something mythological. It's it's someone or something specific that has specific goals that can have relationships with the players. Um, and the way this tends to work is that players have um, usually they start with three points to spend on between one to three different icons, and they can be conflicted positive or neutral with that icon. So, for example, someone might take a conflicted relationship with a dwarf queen for one point and, you know, a positive relationship with the great gold worm for two points. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the way that tends to work is whenever your GM would call for an icon relationship role, a lot of times it's once per session, but the system allows kind of flexibility for the GMs and players to figure out when this might be. Uh, You roll a D6 for each point of relationship you have, and if you roll a five or a six, that means essentially that the icon is taking interest in this story and this character at this moment. Um, mm. So f- from a narrative perspective, it says, okay, it tells me to foreground aspects of story or antagonist or uh, allies or NPCs. From a mechanical standpoint, if they roll a five, they get an icon benefit with a conflict. If they roll a six, it's just a straight up icon benefit. And... The one of the interesting things is to me the icon benefits almost allow GMs and players to hack the game itself a little bit, whether you're talking about the mechanics or the story, um, and that can be a whole long topic. So I don't want to get onto it too much now. But the idea is that it allows, if someone has a connection with a, uh, or an icon, it allows them to both decide where they might want the story to go. And it allows the major movers and shakers in the canon, in the setting, to have a relationship with the player characters. Yeah. And then we have the backgrounds. Quinn Murphy, who's mm-hmm. someone I've never met but follow on Twitter, he's a game designer and writer, had a really good description um, in his blog, uh, Thought Crimes, mm-hmm. where he, he talked about backgrounds being this real secret sauce of 13th Age. Because... Ooh. When you look at them, it just seems like, okay, they're simplifying the skill system. Instead of having, if you think of D&D or Pathfinder or other D20 games, you have a list of skills, and each class has certain skills that, you know, you might can put points into, and that helps your die rolls when you do skill checks. In 13th Age, you have backgrounds instead. And backgrounds usually have two or three or sometimes more of them, And you have usually, it's about eight points to spend at the beginning of character creation. And you spend it on different backgrounds. And backgrounds can be anything you essentially want to describe who or what your character was before they were an adventurer. Or maybe they still are. Uh, For example, you might have the uh, disgraced former Knight of the Crusader. Mm -hmm. It might be a background. And what that does is it tells me, one, uh, it's it's a former thing. It's uh, the type of warrior you were and the type of armies you might have fought in. And, or, you know, um, crown jester on his last legs. Or, um, <laughs> you know, like the idea is, it's so the way Quinn Murphy described it, it's, it's, it's like you take the skills from like a D20 game and combine them with fate aspects and um, I think it's uh, Cortex Plus descriptions. Um, and you oh, kind okay. of merge those all together. It's not quite any one of those, but it all has different aspects of those three. So, for example, if I call for a skill check related to, oh, I would like to try and persuade this minor noble that we are totally supposed to be here in this, uh, you know, library. You know, the character might have a background that is, uh, like there's one of, one of my players has a background that is uh, thought dead seventh son of a minor noble. I was like, all right. <laughs> You know, having grown up as a noble son, what kind of things do you then say to him? So it's not just a, all right, you get a plus three because that's what you put in this background. It's, all right, what in your background allows you to do this? 
And I think a good thing, I guess, again, this is going back to Ken Murphy's blog post, is he says, here's the thing. If you want to intimidate someone, for example, and in many games you might have intimidate plus four. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that tells you, okay, you have a skill net, but it doesn't tell you how it works, what you do. But if you had Red Sea Pirate Captain plus four, then suddenly if you're going to use that to intimidate a character, that tells you a lot about the type of intimidation or the kind of experience you might have in intimidating people and how much of that is gruff and how much of that is combat and how much of that is, you know, uh, getting physical or mental. So backgrounds kind of take the place of skills in a D20 sitting, but allow you to say, okay, my background in this gives me the this ability, this bonus to this type of skill check. So those are the kind of the, the three main departures from what you might expect to see in like a D20 fantasy game. That's excellent. And I and I, I like that you explained the backgrounds like that, because I know like 5th edition has backgrounds. Yes. More or less, but completely differently. Yep. Um, now, now that we've talked about how cool this system is, I, I feel a little silly asking the question, uh, why 13th Age? Why um why mod it? Why why play with it like you do? Um, so personally, for me, I had a, a lot of a background in um, playing a lot of like Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, investigative games, Gumshoe, mm-hmm. and I had played, you know, I've played Pathfinder, I've played D anD D, and I like them, and I like a lot of the mythology and historical, or I should say, ahistorical or uh, anachronistic fake history, but that kind of aspect of it. I love the fantasy settings. Yeah. Um, but they didn't necessarily move me to be a GM. Um, there are times when I, I, as a GM, I had come to realize my style was very, while not necessarily improvisational, very collaborative. Yeah. Um, very narrative focused. I liked systems that I could kind of grok the mechanics mm-hmm. well enough that I could just, when someone wanted to do something, they went, oh, just off the top of your head, I want to do this, and there's no real rules for it. And I'm like, you know what? The rules are enough that I can do this and boom. And 13th Age, I'd heard a lot of good things about. And so I was curious when I looked into it, and it hit that sweet spot for me of having enough of those, a, a little of crunch to have the rules where you can do really cool things and there are rules and mechanics for it. But with a way enough leeway to say, all right, my style is for people to go, I want to do a cool thing. I want to go a cool place. Mm-hmm. I want to invest myself in this. And for me to say, okay, let's mash on that jam box. And that's, to me, uh, what got me interested in 13th Age and then got me kind of playing it repeatedly for the last couple of years. Uh, what got me to be interested in modding it and hacking it was so when I picked up 13th Age, I had actually got it at the Ennies auction that they have at Gen Con, mm-hmm. and it had been bundled with a, uh, a third-party bestiary from Midgard, uh, from Kobold Press. And oh, okay. so I figured they, it's kind of that one's kind of like a, almost like a pre-industrial Grimm's fairy tales kind of European, but it extended beyond like the borders of Europe to Asia and Africa. And dealt a lot with folklore, so it interested me. And um, Wade Rocket, who now I think does social media for Pelgrain and or Fire Opal, he designed a, uh, a con setting, a con session, uh, a con adventure for cons mm-hmm. um, called The Wreck of Volan's Glory. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try and run it. Now, the thing is, is Kobold Press has done a few 13th Age kind of mods. Um, uh, Ashlaw, Calmore, and Wade Rocket have been involved with some of those. But it was very minimal. And one of the things I wanted to do was create 13th Age characters that really spoke to the Midgard setting. For, and this was for Valorion, Valorcon a couple of years ago. One of which I really thought was cool is the, uh, some of the cleric domains that come up for Midgard. One of which was the domain of beer. And yeah, so for me, as someone who loves... Uh, so one of my other passions is, is cocktails and spirits... Mm-hmm. It's 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 one of those where I for a while had a, for years had a second job working at a distillery, doing tours and making drinks for them. So I thought this would be really cool. Plus, you can could also reference things like you think of you know Friar Tuck and Robin Hood. So I said, okay, I want to do the cleric that has this domain, but there are no Thirteenth Age rules for it. Mm. So I was like, well, <laughs> you know, Mother. Be- I was like necessity of invention and all that. So I came up with. Um, just some rules for that domain. 
And I was like, okay, this seems somewhat balanced. I think I can roll this. And I used some of the stuff that uh, had been designed for 13th Age for Midgard for the character for the character races. And played it at ValorCon. And the person who uh, – one of the people was like, oh, he's like, oh, I have to choose this cleric. He's got a domain of beer. I have to do this cleric. <laughs> and the thing is, is he ran with it. And he, in fact, uh, decided that – I mean, it was kind of a joke – in the sense of like he his one unique thing was that he was the best brewer this side of the continent um and he decided that one of the secret to his success was he had stolen some of the uh, uh a sacred spring that belonged to the baba yaga who is one of the icons in that setting um Ooh. right and the thing is and the baba yaga hasn't realized it yet so that's something we worked in there. But it's also one of those where he utilized that that domain and that kind of idea of community, not just like, oh, I'm getting drinking to get drunk. It's the idea mm-hmm. of community and shared experience uh, that goes along a lot of times with, you know, going to a pub and having, you know, that kind of festival or celebration. And so th- there were times where they would resolve conflicts through – you know, his use of, I will make, you know, I want to make beer, or you will try this, this, you know, this kind of sacred, we compared it to Malort, which is this disgusting Chicago liqueur. Mm-hmm. It's basically his version of Malort. We, we decided that the Dust Goblins had that. And so that they, he drank of it, and, you know, it became this, his, an integral part of his character. So I had so much fun with that, that I started to go, okay, I want to play with this. And seeing things like, um, like Primeval Thule, uh, I think Sasquatch Studios did a thing where they you did like a 13th age, um, you know, version. Uh, there was a Carthoon, which is an upcoming setting um, that uh, mm. Brian Patterson, is, he uses it for his D20 Monkey comic. Um, they had mentioned it's it's a setting, it's a system neutral setting. I was like, oh, what about hacking that for 13th age? But I know they're going to be doing GM stuff with it. And so just started seeing both in terms of how to apply to new settings, but then also, okay, now that I'm doing that, I want to, um, one of my players, when I was trying to convince to play 13th Age, wanted kind of an artificer class because he loves Eberron, um, mm. Keith Baker's setting, yeah. and he wanted to do a uh, artificer. Sure. And I was like, hmm, well, what if, and so what I did is I ended up taking and kind of just from the you know, bottom creating an uh, alchemist class and saying, okay, one of, and making the alchemist class almost like a Swiss army knife. that can be very focused, very broad. And one of the schools of that, of, of that class would be essentially make, you know, making magic items and cludging things to be used in combat and in everyday situations. So for me, um, the amount of freedom and I guess wiggle room and the express desire that the author's, said they want people to tweak, to update, to adapt, um, so that, you know, you can tell the stories that you and your players want to tell. That is, I think, the main thing. Like, all of those specific reasons are because there's something that strikes you as fascinating or interesting, and I want to create this, or a player really wants this, how can I mod it to give it to them? I think feel, I always just feel like 13th Age is really an awesome system for that. Cool. And yeah, that author enthusiasm for homebrews and modding the system, was that there from the start? Do you know? Um, it felt like it was. So okay. it's one of those where uh, the when one of the things also hooked me about the books, the setting, the system, is just the timbre and the style of writing that they have. Mm-hmm. It's it's very conversational. Yeah, I, I like even the very beginning. The introduction is is very like it's going to be okay. We know this is a new game. Here's how <laughs> you deal. With it. And it's also one of those things where there are kind of smart aleck comments throughout. There are you know that that sounds a little flippant, but one of the, for example with the druid class, there is you know a high level spell that allows you to essentially build a giant wall of earth, and one of the comments on it. I, and this isn't verbatim, I'm trying to remember exactly, but it's long lines of, if you're trying to figure out how bi- making this giant massive wall of Earth suddenly appear will benefit you in combat, you're thinking about it wrong. <laughs> and there's just little comments like that throughout, but also you have Jonathan Tweed and Rob Heinsu putting in author comments throughout the different texts because they're also, they run games differently. 
they approach GMing and games and game design slightly differently. So it's a nice little thing of, even if they didn't explicitly say, please tweak our stuff, please change it. They did explicitly say, here's how I do it. Or here's how I do it. Here's, we left you enough opening. They do specifically say in the canon, for example, they've given you enough detail to have stories, but they've left enough open for you to take it in the direction you want to take it. And they do, what's interesting is eventually when they uh, really did their GM resource book, there is a, uh, when they, t- they actually talk about the design aesthetic, like there is a few pages on the design aesthetic. And what they do is they say, hey, GMs, here's the guidelines that we give our, our writers and designers. You know, we want you to, to tweak and to make this useful for you. So here are what we do. When we have people that we bring in to write and design, here's what we tell them. So you know, take a look as a GM when you're tweaking stuff as we want you to, here's how you can do that. So I always thought that was really cool. Yeah, I think so too. I think it really helps when you know from the beginning that the people who made this game support you playing this game in the way that's going to be most fun, whatever that means, you know? In fact, yeah. So I just called up that book and yes, it literally says verbatim, instead of telling a single story and filling in the details, we aim to make GMs and players feel excited about having tweaked or improved ideas to make them their own. And that's very much their aesthetic. Awesome. So you you can't help not, you know, right. like, you, you have to. At, at, yeah, for me, at some point, I'm like, well, what if I do this? Hey, here's a monster idea. or mm-hmm. and, and it is a lot of fun when they, like I said, that's actually, I think that's the first section of the, the introduction in their GM guide and resource book is kind of the, all right, here's the intro. Here's the design aesthetic if you want to tweak or mod things. And some of it is, hey, before you tweak and mod, you know, is there something that we've already done that, you can just kind of slap a different coat of paint on. If not, here's things you can do. So nice. So let's let's get a little bit more specific uh, All right. with with some of the things that you've done. So um, do you want to talk about icons first? Because we got a couple questions related yes. to those, and I know that's a big the, the icon relationships are a big, uh, just just a big. <laughs> They're a big. Uh, going back to I said that Slack channel where uh, people were people were talking about it. One of the things is like, oh, I don't know about icon relationships. It's because mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, I just don't know how to handle them, what to do. And in fact, that is one of the big parts, again, of that GM uh, resource guide is they go through more in depth because, and this may have been what drew me to one of the big things that drew me to 13th Age and how they use icons is that they they do leave it vague um, when they tell mm-hmm. you, okay, you have an icon, you have points with an icon. You have positive, conflicted, negative. You roll dice, but do you roll dice at the beginning of the adventure? At the beginning of a session? Do you roll at the end of the session for next time? Do you roll it at dramatic moments? Um, is there a point where you, if you introduce something that might be related to an icon, you roll it? Um, and they go, yes, by all means, <laughs> whichever one works. Um, and they say, okay, now that you have a benefit, what do you do with it? Is it something where a player can kind of exchange it for information, exchange it to succeed on a skill check, exchange it to create an ally that, you know, an NPC that might not have always existed. Can they exchange it to mechanically, you know, break the system a little bit? And again, the answer is, yeah, sure. That sounds great. Um, (laughs) Which I think can be a little daunting because they're not spelling out every little possible thing. But for me, it was like, oh, I glommed onto that so hard. So the way I tend to approach it is that with icon relationships, it's, to me, it's kind of the the opportunity for the player or GM to hack the system a little bit at the given point in time. Because these icon benefits, like I said, they can be as simple as something where I might say it's, there's a similarity to like the fate point economy, but different. Because the, the economy in fate is very much a give and take. Whereas with icon relationships, it's kind of like, okay, when you spend this, it's going to be a big thing, which is similar, but it's like, you're going to have maybe one or two of these a session. So a lot of times it's one of those where if you feel there's a dramatic moment where suddenly you want your character to take center stage and say, okay, here's where I want this narrative to go. That's, that's one way to use it. And you can kind of say, okay, this is where I have a really vested interest in the story and I want to take it a certain way or I want to 
gain more information than I normally would have had, where I want the GM to basically kind of spill his guts on what he's thinking about this organization. Or, you know, some players have used it like, all right, I'm going to tell a story about how with uh, this particular, you know, because of this icon, I have, you know, I have a negative relationship with the Lich King. I'm always about combating the Lich King, and I'm fighting the undead, and I just got, you know, they just hit me for a critical that's probably going to drop me. You know what? Um, I know what happens with the uh, Lich King and how the undead work, so I'm going to spend my icon benefit with the Lich King to force the GM to re-roll that. So that could be, you know, it's a very mechanical thing. Whereas one of my favorites, and this was suggested by a player, was there was essentially a, uh, uh, the enemy was creating weapons that auto-crit. You know, it's kind of like, they're creating weapons with your name on it. You are essentially, if you get hit with it, you're going to be near death. And these are just get, kind of getting churned out slowly. So what he said is he kind of wanted to kind of essentially break the combat system and say, you know what, as someone who was, uh, who's been training with the High Druid because I want to become a better blade master. And he had wove this into the background of his story, how he's been training with these rangers and these other fighters to become a more acrobatic and dramatic because he was kind of a Mad Mardigan from Willow-type character. And he says, and I'm going to use my... He told the story about how he trained for this one day because he knew that he would have to use more than just his ability with a sword. He'd also have to be nimble and be able to use improvised weaponry. And so he spun this story about this background, about his, this history that, of what he'd done, so that he could try and catch the blade before mm. it got to the enemies. And it's one of those where there aren't really combat rules for that. It's very outside the norm. And I went, you know what? That's a really cool idea. Here's how I'm going to kind of take the rules that exist and say, here's how this works. And then, you know, so there's, there's a drawback to it. And, you know, you kind of give up your turn if you do it. And if you fail, you're, you're in real trouble because you're just a sitting duck. But what that means is, of course, then he takes his D20 and he's just looking at it like, oh boy, like this could be a life or death thing. If I fail this, I'm essentially just in the open about, you know, asking them to kill me. So it, using the icons to say, okay, that, that relationship point became a way to not just play with the mechanics, but also to tell this story, this background that then leads up to this dramatic moment. It's a little bit of a flashback that suddenly makes uh, puts an investment into this single die roll. So dang, so that kind of answers actually one of the listener questions. Uh, although I don't know if it's uh, what he was looking for, if it's going to be as, as helpful as he hoped. Um, Richard on Twitter was asking other ways to use icon relationships um, other than everything is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's yeah. that's the thing is it's, and I think that's what that is one of the areas of confusion that can happen or. or because it's it's almost like I said to me it, it felt like a an invitation to mm -hmm. allow hacking and modding of some of the mechanics, some of the story, uh, some of like the expectation it allows you to break the rules a little bit, or allows someone to pull spotlight, or someone to gain information that otherwise would only, only the GM might know. And I love that yeah. because then that it allows for an investment. And I think if I were to say if there's one thing that icon relationships should do is they should allow for an investment by the players and the GM. Cool. I think the game the game that I played when we finally got to to icons it was um, it was a con game so you don't get to everything. Mm -hmm. um, I think there there was a lot of like divine insight kind of given to people along the way from their from their icon relationship things like that. But actually affecting the mechanics of something that you're doing is uh is pretty cool and I did not know that you could do that with those. So awesome, Richard, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and so in the, in the GM guy they they talk about it too is they're like yeah. Be careful with that a bit. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's it's also one of those where and that's but that also that kind of fits my philosophy of if it's cool, then you should make the rules fit the coolness. I mean, if it's it's gonna be cool, we'll figure out a way to make the rules fit the cool action, cool storytelling. Yeah. Richard actually had another thought or another question about icons. He was asking um, how to hack them. And that kind of goes hand in hand with Kevin Bates on Twitter was asking, how does making a drastically different setting change how gods, uh, and he says there's a better thir 13th age term for those, I think he means the icons, uh, how they're dealt with. So I think both of those go together nicely in that when you change the setting or what you change um, drastically even, uh, there's there's some questions people had about, you know, running a sci-fi game with this 
the system mm-hmm. or even just changing to another fantasy setting what do you do with the icons do you do you replace them with something else do you how do you handle that um so that's that was very good questions and i will say even before i get to my response is wade rocket on the pelgrane site did for their c page xx blog did a really good kind of run through of how a a player can mod or hack that because he had done that for Midgard Mm. and uh, was it him or was it Ash? I think it was Wade Rocket who did that. Yeah, it was Wade. And so he goes through kind of the considerations and one of the interesting things. So when you're talking about, Oh, and uh, if you go like to the Illuminati, uh, Ruth Tillman did a really cool series uh, taking, you know, the idea of like what would happen if the mythos came to the dragon empire. And so she kind of modded the icons to be more Lovecraftian. So the main things you're considering with, if you're, modding the existing uh, setting or if you're creating a new setting, the icons should, you don't have to have 13 of them. It's kind of what okay. feels natural. 13 is just a fun That's number. Yeah. 13 is just a fun number. But what an icon should be is, is they should be kind of, there's a number of things is that they should be, like I said, a mover and shaker in whatever your setting is. So if you have, you know, um, thinking of, we're going to Midgard, talking about Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga mm-hmm. has an entire region where she kind of has an influence. She has, you know, uh, a very extensive, you know, folkloric kind of influence as well. But she also has motivations. She has minions. She has lackeys. She has go-betweens. Theoretically, you could go and meet the Baba Yaga. Um, and that is one of the things, I think, that, that separates icons from gods. Um, is if a, you know, a God could be something that is distant, you know, they may have motivations, but they tend to be unknowable. They may work through, um, you know, their clerics in the setting, but you're never, aside from maybe high level ventures, going to meet a God. They're not going to be something that can change with the world a lot of times. And again, depending on the setting, that might be different. There are times when, you know, the gods won't walk among us, um, but the an icon should be some something that is someone or something, whether it's an organization or a person that is influential, uh, you know, something that has goals. Uh, I think as Wade described it, you know, a dragon who wants to shape the future of the continent, who has you know political intrigue on their mind, is an interesting icon. Whereas a dragon who wants to sit, you know, in their horde and just kind of sleep for a millennia is not an interesting icon because they're not going to interact, but also it should really, when you look out at over the course of, you know, the icons, you should have also have a range of kind of uh, viewpoints and moralities and goals so that, you know, they interact with each other. They contradict each other. They would have reason to have minions that influence each other. They would have reasons to say, Hey, you players who seem to be, gosh darn big heroes um, or gosh darn big villains Mm -hmm. I would like you to do this or I want to stop whatever you're doing and so whenever you're creating a setting when you choose your icons okay these are the 7, 10, 13 organizations or individuals who can influence the story and and sometimes for example maybe the world is too big for that and you want to say, okay, in this setting, we're just doing this continent or this planet in this sector of the galaxy. And even though in the giant canon, you have these massive icons that are more important in this sector, here are the icons that will influence what you might do. So that's that's when you're designing icons. You want to kind of look at um, those aspects to make sure that there's a reason for players to choose them for players to interact with them, to develop a hatred or a love of them. Awesome. Have you ever had anybody meet an icon in a game? I have not yet. And part of that is a lot of times with uh, 13th Age is what I like about it is it's, it's very much, it's a 10 level system. Like characters go from level one to 10. When you mm-hmm. get to say a level eight, nine or 10, yeah, you might be directly influencing icons. Um, but as you're kind of working up through, as I've been introducing people, working through those first to you know, early to mid levels, a lot of times you will meet an NPC who is a representative of an icon. Mm-hmm. And so the players, the question I tend to ask is, okay, have you met said icon? You know, if, if you have a background with them, have you actually met them before? 
Um, cause that can be a good or a bad thing. You know, having met the blue dragon, yeah. who's one of the three, it's that, that would be, you know, one of the oldest dragons in existence of the dragon empire, whose, uh, schemes are unknowable. Mm-hmm. Um, but always bear, you know, but she always has a reason to use someone. Um, she is also the mother of sorcery. That would be a little terrifying to meet. <laughs> yep. So the question is, did you meet her? Or maybe, you know, were you involved in the thing that she flew by and saw? Like, did you catch her glance? Or did you meet, there was, oh, there was one player at a con who, um, who did meet the elf queen. Um, right. And it was one of those where, uh, I like the way they did it, where it was one of those where, was he a consort of hers? He hasn't met her in a long time and has not been welcome in her court for a while, but he's met her and there was a rumor he may have been a consort. So that level of everyone kind of going, oh, okay, we probably don't want to bring it up, but we know, you know, there's that intrigue. Mm-hmm. So oh, cool. And that was, that was the player mentioned. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that would make sense to have met the icon and then kind of be in the outs. You're a little mm-hmm. conflicted there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that a lot. So that's good to know when approaching icons. And then to follow up with the the last of Richard's queries here was about the the feasibility of a sci-fi uh, reskin um, of Thirteenth Age. He he went straight to Mass Effect because he knows that <laughs> I I firmly believe that every system has been hacked to be Mass Effect. Uh, I just haven't googled hard enough. Um, um, so. Well, it's funny as I did. I was kind of peeking at some of the questions at people who were replying on Twitter, and I was like, man do some interesting things playing around with the Paragon system in that, I feel like. Um, yeah. Like how, if you could you want to use backgrounds or, and how that, because the, re- the reason I was thinking about it is going back to Quinn Murphy, who liked to play, you know, said that backgrounds of the secret sauce, mm-hmm. is one of the things that he said, he talked about was maybe even hacking, like uh, using memories. It's like every background might have kind of surface or deep memory, you know, a deep memory associated with that. And Ooh. that's something that you might, pop up to use in the course of a game. And this was just something like he was just riffing on this on Twitter. I was like, whoa, whoa, that's interesting. So, you know, one of those things where could you use special backgrounds uh, that might say, okay, for example, if you fail a role that, you know, you might think is related to uh, that type of uh, your Paragon standing. Could you use that as a reroll like once per session? Or if you do things like you can, spend ben- you know spend icon benefits to uh gain or lose points um so that was kind of the things bawling around in my head i don't know mass effect as well i uh i'm a huge dragon age fan yes <laughs> so yeah i uh, i have not made it through past the first 2 hours of a mass effect game so um i'm i'm with you. i'm in team dragon age <laughs> what what i found interesting is I was, someone was mentioning on Twitter today about uh, 40K, which I haven't played in years. But I mm. I've, I always enjoyed that game. I love strategy and tactics. And I liked a lot of the fluff behind it, um, especially when they would kind of reference kind of Greek tragedy and some of the horse heresy stuff. And it's like, okay, if I were going to mod like a 40K setting, I think the questions I would want to ask are, is there some sort of magic? You know, is there like a psychic ability telekinetic is is there some sort of psyker aspect to it or is is science replacing magic because then it's like okay then i might say okay you might want to mod like the wizard or sorcerer classes to be more about people who use you know weaponry or technology to do certain things and i know that this is actually something on the one of the 13th age groups i was in where they had modded i forget what the setting was but they'd played with modding um, the fantasy setting for a sci-fi setting, and they seem to be able to do it rather well. Unfortunately, I don't recall any of the details. But my thought was, for example, if you're taking a 40K setting, kind of focus on a sector. And I was already, like, the icons would almost seem to be, like, were already kind of writing themselves in my brain. And I would focus on that kind of almost, uh, I almost think, I almost compare it like a, a rogue trader type of group where you have, um, you know, different, you know, you wouldn't have space Marines as characters, but you just have your average Eldar or, uh, you know, human or, or Tau or whatnot 
plucky group just trying to get by in an uncaring universe. Because Grimdark, for me, is not my favorite type of setting, but I like the, yeah. let's let's see what a plucky group can do in this. So I think, I feel like there it might be a little bit of a heavier mod because you're taking into consideration, you know, how does... Then again, I think about some of the uh, uh, published settings where they talk about the overworld in the Dragon Empire in 13th Age and talk about, you know, if you're riding dragons or you're, you know, traveling the clouds or traveling the overworld, which has almost a sci-fi-ish feel to it. So there are, like, it's one of those where if you're if you're, answer, you're willing to ask, answer some basic questions about how magic versus physics and science work and when you're talking about what classes would be for a sci-fi setting, um, if you're willing to look at, all right, what does a wizard do in a fantasy setting? You know, does, is there a type of, in the sci-fi setting you have, is there like someone who's kind of low armor, but heavy firepower? Um, you know, I almost think of like a um, rocket raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> who's just always, you know, has an insane amount of firepower that tends to be one use. Um, or, you know, like, like I could see modding like a sort, you know, a wizard who has these high power spells that are daily use to be like that kind of character. Yeah. I think it can be done. Yeah, I don't see why not. How much work are you willing to put into it, Richard? <laughs> that And that's, that is the thing is a lot of times is, uh, even with myself, I, sometimes I find it where you're like, oh, I'll get an idea and you start writing things down and you come back to it a little while later. And uh, then you're like, oh man, I don't have a chance to play test this. I don't want to, I don't want to, push this and I don't want to use it yet. I want to, you know, like one of those where you do a lot of things you're like, well, cause you want to make sure that's not something that's obviously that the, the point is not to overpower things. The, uh, right. and one of the fun, one of the fun things, one of the guidelines I feel like they give that's really good in the GM resource guide is that, um, when you're creating an encounter or you're creating, you know, when you're talking about creating encounters or modding things is what is the feeling? Like, you don't necessarily want to say, okay, I want, I'm going to, I want this to represent this type of event happening. I want it to be completely descriptive so that, you know, if I, if this person is doing, shooting a laser, I want to create the physics of how the laser works. Whereas you go, oh, I can just take existing thing. And how do you want it to feel versus, um, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily want to write out a two page treatise on how the physics of it work. Um, and have the player figure that and, you know, read that. You want them to go, oh, pick up a laser, shoot it, it does this. Done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you when you playtest the stuff that you work on, do you prefer to playtest it yourself in person? Or do you share things online and just let people have at it or anything like that? I need to be better at sharing it online and having other people. Because 13th Age has a really good kind of fan community. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you go to, there's, a, it's called the 13th Age Vault. That's where, and if you, and they have a very robust Google Plus group, and I'm not active enough, I feel, on Google Plus, but they'll put out things like guidelines how to create um, a class. Um, they'll have uh, how to, you know, if people have feedback, they'll, you know, all a bunch of different classes and monsters and kind of hacks and mods that people have done. And there's a lot of in interesting things. A lot of times if I'm going to do something, I'm like, all right, is there someone who's done something? Does it fit the concept I have? Well, then I might just take them and kind of tweak what they're doing. So it's a very robust setup. So instead, I haven't done that yet. I've, I've started like, you know what? I should probably, because with your own group or your own groups, I'm mm -hmm. finding a lot of times, you know, life can get in the way. Sure. Um, and sometimes it's like, oh, we want to have a fun adventure, not necessarily playtest something that may not be ready to, might be balanced yet. You know, things as simple as creating new monsters or enemies, you know, can be a thing you can add. But adding a new class, for example, I've been like, all right, I'm going to try and in this kind of one-off game, maybe I'll introduce the alchemist thing I've been working on and we'll see how this works. But a lot of times it's like, well, I don't want the playtesting in a way of the having fun because playtesting can be, all right, what didn't work? What's broken? What's this? So, so I play test my own, but I should probably be releasing more for people to try out. <laughs> yeah, let's see what they come back to you with, and they they might do things with it that your group never thought to do to break it. But you did mention a couple things that you may be able to answer the last listener question that is from Dan Phipps on Twitter also, uh, and he's curious: what are some interesting classes that can be built purely from remixing the existing abilities in the core and true ways? Ooh, that is a fun question. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it sounds like you've done a little bit of that. Well, what was interesting and what, what also part of the reason I got so interested in doing homebrew and hacking and modding for 13th age is because uh, when they started doing what they call the 13th age monthly, Pelgrane does a lot of like monthly kind of supplements that they'll do on a subscription basis for their different games oh, for 13th okay. age. Um, they, what's been interesting about it is it, it's felt like it's kind of a, a place where writers and designers and authors can kind of like, all right, here's this thing that isn't that it's interesting. It's play tested, but it may not be like perfect, but here, try this. So like they've, they've kind of um, introduced more summoning rules and whatnot. But in addition to that, they're doing a book called 13th age in Glorantha. They're bringing mm. back that classic setting. And one of the things they did in that was they have what they call transformation classes. Was like the term that was used in play in the playtest packets. For example, um, they take a they have something called a rebel, which is a rogue transformed with a few new abilities, so that you don't have to necessarily take um, like you're like oh I want a roguish type character, but this doesn't fit. Is then you can transform like all right the basic skeleton of a rogue. Here are a few abilities that get moved in and out, but otherwise the mechanics stay very similar. Um, we, and it's called a rebel. So that idea of a transformation class was cool. And so um, if, for example, you're talking about the core set and 13 true ways, could you cludge something together for a new class combining them? And I would say yes. Uh, in fact, I would say the alchemist that I came up with took a lot of inspiration from um, both the wizard class in the core book and the uh, druid class in 13 true ways, both of which you know have the wizard's obviously a spellcaster. The druid can be a spellcaster, but what was interesting mm-hmm. to me was, okay, you're looking at the power levels of, say, a wizard class, and you're looking at what the spells do, you know, what kind of effects they have. Um, and for a druid, you have, instead of having prepared spells, you have spells that you can just cast one or two of the daily, you know, you as you progress, you can cast more daily spells, but you don't have to prepare them. Mm. And so I liked that idea, and that kind of formed the core of the alchemist was, all right, I want to kind of make, take some of these wizard type spells, including like utility type spells and say, okay, if you have, but if, but if you do it and you take some of that, that, that kind of non-prep aspect of the druid, what can we do to create a whole, a whole new class? Now it's the class itself. I wanted to focus on different things and I created a few other uh, class features that weren't in either of them, but it's like, okay, I want to take this aspect from the druid, this aspect from the wizard, and use them to inform. Not only that, then you're using also the language, like the uh, kind of damage levels. What does a daily versus a recharge versus a once per battle do? And also like, okay, how does, conceptually, how does it hang together? Because I think the one thing that I think is a good piece, someone in the uh, vault of 13th age mentioned when they were talking about building classes is, if you're going to make a new class, while you might want to draw from old ones, there should be a conceptual reason why you want it to be new. What does it do that you can't do with a different class or even a multi-class? So I think, okay. yeah. yeah. So that to answer the question, I think is is really it's like you want to have a core concept that is not addressed by any of the others, but it's still a good idea to pull and feed from them and see how they might interact or how they might, if there's overlap or what you can pull from some of them to be similar. Cool. That is, that's it for the the questions that I've got. Is there anything else about the system that you want to talk about or any other tips for modding it before either one of us gets eaten by our cats? <laughs> oh, sorry. Did you uh, hear Lily Yadviga? Yeah, she, uh, she can be distant. I had to check and make sure it wasn't mine. <laughs> and I knew she was probably going to do that at some point, mm-hmm. she, but she, she's okay now. So let's see. There, The thing is, there are a lot of things like I... Yeah, I even worry that I got verbose on uh, this discussion because I can talk for a while. And there are a lot of things that I enjoy about 13th Age. One of the things I would say about modding and using homebrew for 13th Age is that it's a system that is very, very welcoming, that is very, very nice and very good for it. And one of the things that I, for me, what I what I love to do is the published material that they've that uh, Pelgrim has put out that, you know, Fire Opal has done, the way that just kind of getting insight into their design aesthetic, getting an idea of, okay, this is conceptually what we want them to do, peering behind, like being able to peer behind the curtain and the veil 
um, just listening to them to, you know, at, at different cons or when they write up something or uh, whatnot is being able to, it's as someone who, you know, was in theater research and dramaturgy who loves kind of pulling back and go, okay, what's, what's the background for this? What's the motivation? What was the inspiration? What's the context is mm-hmm. doing all that reading and reading the books and reading everything and going, Oh, Hey, wait, I want to do this thing. Here is thing over here in 13th monthly that someone did. What if I pull that and combine that with this, you know, thing B over here and tweak it for something my player wants, you know, cludge those three things together. And Hey, so I feel like they've, they've, uh, they have a very robust uh, method of, of how they've, they've designed it to a point where it's really, it sings along really nicely. So, and if you, you know, kind of pull from things that already exist and tweak them, it's really forgiving and also very helpful. And I think some of the third party things you've seen, like one of the best third party things I've seen is um, Aaron Rudabash has a Patreon that he'll publish things. And it's just fascinating because it's like, oh, he's pulling this idea, obviously, like something that reminded me of something from Discworld. But I'm seeing him using mechanics that you've seen echoes of from other publications that, you know, and you're going, oh, oh, that's clever. Like I know even using the, uh, some of the things they throw away, like I said, they create a very, I don't want to say vague, but they leave a lot of openings and even the canon and the narrative. So for example, the talking about the different types of assassins or the society of assassins that might've worked for the black dragon. One of Aaron's, you know, things he did for his Patreons was doing kind of a more, I don't want to say, nice or good assassins, but, you know, more of a kind of a, more of a guild that is, uh, I would say, more honorable than, say, the Black Dragons. So it's that, I'm like, oh, that provides an interesting interplay. So I feel like the system is really, is really good at, you know, you can find a thing that you go, oh, I want to create a regeneration effect for a trollkin PC character. Well, here's how regeneration works for, in, you know, this loot item. Here's how regeneration works for the druid here. Mm -hmm. What can I, you know... Now that we've already got that mechanic in place, how can I take that or use that for a character? So That's awesome. Some of the resources that you've mentioned, I think we will definitely put in the show notes because it sounds like there is there is a lot that you could that you can do and there's a lot to talk about still and yeah. to explore with this system. So Yeah, I so said there's there's a lot of a lot of people of I, I feel written. Uh, it was one of those where I was joking on Twitter earlier that I kind of feel as though me talking about thirteenth age is like, oh man. All the people I read and follow seem to, I feel like, know more than I do. Um, so that's why it's always like, there's so many resources that if you can pull on, you know, things of, like, when I'm like, oh, I want to do a thing where I want to create, basically, scarecrows as a type of monster, do different versions of that. And it's like, all right, well, how do fear things work? How do they recommend handling, like, because they have a DIY, create your own monster guidelines in the core books. Okay, what do they say here? Okay, in the GM guy, what do they say here? What, you know, does Aaron say here? What does Wade say here? What does Robin Jonathan say here? And so it's, you don't have to. I mean, you can just go out and hack, do it. But there's a lot out there where you can go, oh, hey, how did so-and-so do it? Oh, hey, well, how, how do they recommend this? Why did they recommend this? That is so good. And you definitely know a lot more than I do. <laughs> I am I am inspired now to go and give the system a serious look. I, I like the, the con game that I played, but um, I have not delved much deeper yet and this this has been awesome excellent so uh, if you would like to be found on the internet where can people find you um the best way to find me is probably on twitter um i go by the handle spelled out dash j period and i'm pretty active i shouldn't say enough i think i'm active but i realize i'm probably not that active i'm also on google plus i need to be probably more active on that i blog at i blog occasionally not as much as I should. Like I said, this is the, oh, I don't want to share it until it's ready. Yeah. But, but, but then it's but like, it never got, is. <laughs> I got like 300 things. I've got like, my wife keeps saying, you don't need more notebooks. I'm like, but I'm running out. But I don't ever put <laughs> uh-huh. them online as much as I should. Um, but I, my personal site is dash cool. which, so that has kind of some of the things I like to hack, things I do. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This is, this is fun. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks again to Jay for being on the show. 
You can find his links in the show notes, and definitely play a game with him at a con or something if you get the chance. And thank all of you. This has been a pretty difficult year on a national scale, but a pretty amazing one personally. It can be hard to reconcile those two things as both being true, which is the trouble with personifying an entire year, I guess. But you have all been incredible, and I hope we can keep that kind of support for each other going into 2017, because we are desperately going to need it. I'm looking forward to another year of Modifier, Second Watch, and anything else that may yet come. See you in 2017, heroes! That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier on Twitter at Modifier Podcast or at the headquarters at modifierpodcast.tumblr.com. You can send comments, questions, or contribution suggestions to modifierpodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes as that helps more people find us. Modifier is a proud member of the One Shot Podcast Network, an amazing family of RPG podcasts that includes incredible shows like One Shot, Campaign, Backstory, and Talking Tabletop. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then. <laughs>